Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. As we have discussed in previous episodes, we're using this podcast to showcase the amazing work of people who have dedicated their lives to living and working in some of the most challenging places in the world. In doing so, we explore solutions that all of us can be a part of in an effort to protect wildlife and the ecosystems that all of us depend on for healthy, prosperous lives. We recognize that each of us experiences nature in different ways, and all of us have unique talents and abilities to inspire others to explore, connect with, and protect Mother Nature, no matter how we interact with her. Today, our guests are Pauline Blanchet and Thea Son of RLC Productions. Both are accomplished journalists, artists, and advocates who take an inspiring approach to telling stories about people, nature, and many of the really serious challenges we face as a society today. Pauline and Thea, thank you so much for joining us on the Voices of Nature podcast. We're so excited to have you on today. Thank you for having, for having us. us. We're very excited to be here. Pauline, yeah, thank me, you. Oh, you're very welcome, Thea. Pauline, let me start with you. You founded RLC Productions in a hostel in India and claim the backstory to RLC is not your typical backstory. So with that, you, you have our attention. And so please tell us the backstory to RLC Productions and what brought you to this very exciting career that you have. Yeah, so um, I basically started at the age of 16. And since then, I knew I wanted to work in film and photography. And I also love traveling. So I decided to go traveling with my partner after I graduated from my BA. And we traveled all the way from Turkey to India. And we tried to use, we only used one flight and we tried to use trains and um, boats. And it was a way of showing that we could travel without consuming as much as we normally are used to. And while I was in Uzbekistan, we learned about the Owl Sea. And this is a, used to be the fourth largest lake in the world. And it is now a desert. And the water has been used um, for irrigation and for cotton farming. So the idea was to kind of, firstly, it was really shocking that this had happened um, and uh, it's affecting populations in Uzbekistan greatly, not only on their health, but also on agriculture and food production. And so I decided to kind of use that as inspiration, but also my passion for film to kind of put those together and create our seed productions. And this kind of happened, yeah, in the middle of the desert in India, near the border with Pakistan in a place called Jazalmir, which is um, a beautiful, town in the desert and I thought then that okay what am I going to do after uni this is the perfect thing to do I can start doing all my own projects and I'll use Owlsey as my base so yeah that's kind of the background on how it started and how how long ago was that Pauline like take us a little bit on the arc of the, the yeah. history of RLC from where you started to where you are today of course so it started this was um, in October 2019 so it's been about a year and a couple months now. And it started off just me setting up an email and making a few social media channels. And soon after I had Thea reach out because I'd posted about it on Facebook and basically she became my right hand woman. And together we became partners in RLC and it's now it's grown, we're a team of five. And we are now based across London and Paris. 
So it's been quite a big growth. Obviously with COVID, it's been hard to grow in the physical sense in terms of actually filming, but we've been able to produce some great projects and form a really close bond altogether. But right now, yeah, we're still in early stages. It still feels very much like the beginning. And Thea, you manage the creative and business elements of RLC. Talk to us about your role uh, at RLC and, and how you use that to connect people with nature. Um, so yeah, I manage the creative side. Me and Pauline actually both manage some business elements just regarding different parts of the company. She's more sounds, I'm more film, and then we both look for new clients. But in terms of connecting people to nature, we really see our film production as a way to share sustainable resources and how we can see that connecting to nature is like a personal experience. We want to convey that same experience through the way that we work, through the way that we film. Uh, But at the moment with lockdown, I'd say our main method of connecting to nature is by sharing other artists, people's work that incorporate nature into their work or incorporate social change. So The Tide is our online magazine and that is our main source of using that to inspire people and to get out there and to create really. So you're creating less content over the past year or so, but you're working to to share, to connect and to almost build a network of advocates, allies and other inspired people. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then I guess building on that, Pauline, you've said that RLC Productions deals with issues of social and political importance. And tell us a little bit about those issues as they're very central to your work of, you know, building this network and connecting people and inspiring people. Yeah, definitely. When I first started making films when I was really young, 16 or 17, they were always something which had some sort of political importance. Um, One of the films about child migrants in Albania and another was about people who live in caves in Spain and um, the caves were about to be demolished to put in a luxury hotel. So for me, issues like that are really important to portray through film, to be able to make a difference and to change people's opinions. And RLC does just that. And all the projects that we take on, we really want to see some sort of social impact within them. So one of our biggest projects is a film about sex workers' rights, about how to get sex workers the labor rights and human rights they deserve. So we're following around an activism group in North Macedonia who are right now trying to change the, the legal system so that sex work can be safer for them. So that's like our main documentary we're working on. And we also work closely with issues of refugeehood in the UK and issues which we feel like have need to be listened to right now. And I think in a way that kind of reflects in what we want to do in the creative industry. The creative industry is somewhere which is a lot about nepotism. It's a space which is filled with a lot of privileged people who are usually highly connected or who have been to private school. So it really is underrepresented at the moment. And we want to change that. And through talking about subjects which and topics which are of social and political importance, we want the people telling those stories to be from um, those groups and to be from and underrepresented groups to able to be able to change the creative um, field and landscape, as well as making content which also changes 
people's minds and perspectives. So what does success look like in a few years? I mean, you, you're engaged in some really, really important work, taking on huge challenges. You're frankly disrupting the industry a bit. Take us down the road five or 10 years from now. What do you hope to have accomplished? And I, and I pose that question to both of you. So I don't, Thea, maybe you start and Pauline after that. In five or 10 years, God, it feels like I live primarily in the present. So I haven't really thought about the long term, but I think we want to continue just to promote diverse, inclusive and sustainable film and to grow our network and our own projects. I think being able to commission freelancers of all different backgrounds and like support underrepresented people is something very close to both of our hearts. And just to be able to create content that we want to see out there um, would be the main things. Pauline, anything to add? Yeah, I was going to say I would hope to see a industry which is less hierarchical, similar to what Thea said. I'd like to see more diversity, but also we'd really like to see how we can use arts to create climate action. So in five to ten years' time, I really hope the world has really caught on to what is happening and we hope that the industry, the film industry, not only can be sustainable in the way that it kind of carries out its projects. So for example, using local film crews, using local talent, stop using planes to get you know crew out in, in of countries. And also it means diversifying the crew that you use, but also less waste on set. Um, but these are just small things the film industry can do. On a wider scale, what the film industry can do is it can create films where you, climate change is spoken about consistently. And I think that's extremely important and something that you don't see very often at all in films at the moment. So in five to 10 years, I hope that we are kind of leaders in that in showing that we can talk about climate action in film and arts and podcasts without it being something weird or abnormal. It needs to be normalized and film can create social action. So I think it can definitely have an impact on climate change. So do you envision a more, shall we say, dispersed workforce where, you know, if you're doing a film on climate change and looking at the ravages that it has caused either at the RLC or sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, name the place, that instead of you sending a crew to those places, you would then instead recruit local talent to help capture the, the video, the images, the stories of the people in and around the places that you're talking about? Exactly. In the same way that citizen journalism is used in the, in the field of journalism, I think it's so important to have local crews be able to show what is impacting them locally. And I think that context that they have is really important over having a crew from the UK or France coming in and being like, okay, we're going to film it this way. I think cultural sensitivity comes into that as well. And I think that's important. And I hope to see that in the future. I hope this can be something that, that happens. Yeah, and building on that as well, I think hiring crews from the place that you want to go to, they'll give you a perspective that you probably haven't thought about previously. And they'll give you insight that you might have overlooked. So not only would it help the film industry and create a more a less hierarchical uh, structure, but it would also help the films being made to give a more nuanced perspective of whatever environmental situation they were covering. Yeah, that's a that's really a great point. And I want to build on that. So do you then involve the, I'll just say the local talent, for lack of a better phrase, into the actual production of the film, the, you know, the development of the script, 
the creation of the story arc and so on. Is that the approach as well to just full integration, soup to nuts? Yeah, I think I think it's dependent on the projects for sure. But I think we do that as well with projects that um, if, for example, if someone's written a script about what it's like to be a refugee, but maybe they're not a refugee themselves or maybe not have the experience. I think it's very important to kind of rather than picking that person or that script, taking it from someone who has personal experience or who is a voice for that experience, if that makes sense. And I think that might be more. Yeah, that would make sense in that context, but also with the local, having someone, yes, join in with the script is definitely something that should happen. And, and that's why we see in films and shows, we do see sometimes representation, but for example, just because you have an Asian actor and now they say that there's more representation in that case, it's also about being involved behind the scenes, being involved in the script, being involved in the story, um, rather than just trying to fill a quota. Yeah, it's definitely about building a, a balance between wanting to tell the story and hiring people around you. But it really just does depend on the project. Not every project will lend itself to hiring crew um, locally, for example. But I do think even if it's just giving opportunities to people that maybe have never thought of film and want to come along as a runner on set and just learn about that world or develop different skills, we want to encourage that as well because. I think it's important to give those opportunities to people who've never thought about it. You don't know where it will take them. Well, then they had to build on that. If someone has a, a passion uh, for combining art and nature, doesn't really know where to start. To your point, uh, you know, they're staring at a very hierarchical industry. What's your advice for them to get started? Is this like, do they take on an internship? Do they just start doing their own work? What's the best point of entry? I think honestly, just to start exploring and creating. So explore the topics around you that take your interest and that speak to you. Start small and simple. Don't try and overdo it. Start with what really you were drawn to. And then, yeah, getting experience is important, but I think it's better to make your own films because then you're already, you'll be learning through the way you want to learn with people around you of a similar um how to phrase it, a similar standing, similar level of experience and see the world in a similar way. And then I think you'll use that to inform whether or not you want to go further and get professional experience. However, with lockdown and with the way the world is right now, that's not necessarily a viable option or it's a lot harder to get that if you don't already know some people in the industry. So I do think starting yourself is the best way to go. And on building on that, when we said we want to make the film industry more diverse, we specifically mean underrepresented people and all female crews, because although there is a lot of great male talent out there, uh, this is more rare to find all female productions, all underrepresented group productions. And I think that can put people off from those groups starting just because they don't know they have no peers to turn to who are like them. And then I guess just really looking for inspiration around you is also an important thing. Uh, you've got to really go for what attracts you and start creating from there and just do it for yourself. And I think that would, you'll just start by trial and error, you'll learn what works and what doesn't. I definitely agree with Thea, like just going out there. I mean, we all have, well, not everyone, but a lot of people now have phones which can film. 
um, that's a great way to get started. And I know that there's lots of initiatives where you can also, you know, apply for a bit of funding to kind of get equipment just to get started. Or it's just about starting to create things yourself. I think we get too caught up with thinking about, oh, I've got this idea, but I'm never going to be able to do it. I think it's just about going out there and trying to. But in terms of like, you know, getting a job in my first, I remember my first job I got in film, I think I emailed like 500 production companies and I got three replies out of the 500. And one of them, one out of those three who applied gave me um, the job. And so it took. Yeah, amen months. to that. No, that yeah. <laughs> it's months and months of work, but it was worth it in the end. It was completely worth it. And I think um, you just got to go out and grab it. You know, I didn't wait for a job opportunity to come up and, and film. In fact, it's really, really hard to find job opportunities. You have to just email them and say, look, this is who I am. Take me on. Take me on for work experience. You know, I'm ready. I'm committed. You know, it's like cold calling. You know, you just got to do it. You just got to sell yourself. And I think that comes with having confidence in yourself, which is also, I know, very difficult to have, but you just, sometimes you've just got to fake it as well. So that's that's what I would say. Fake it until you make it. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. It works. You actually reminded me of one more thing that I think is really important, Pauline. Try, when you email production companies, don't email just asking for work. Just honestly email to be like, look, this is what I love about this type of film or this film that you made. Can we just have a chat about it? Can I just learn some more? Because that will end up probably being more of a mentorship and you'll probably learn more that way rather than like whatever production company gets, as Pauline said, maybe 500 emails in like a month, everyone asking for the same thing. Whereas if you really show how you're passionate and what you, what specifically about film or whatever it might be, photography, et cetera, that speaks to you, I think you'd have more of a chance of making a connection and being remembered and therefore actually having a fruitful interaction with someone. That's uh, great advice. So now I'm going to ask you both a very, very pointed question, but I, I really want your perspective on this. So in light of film in particular being this very hierarchical, male-dominated industry, has there been a cost to nature because of that? In that the way that the stories have been told haven't done justice to the risks nature faces or the opportunities to resolve those risks and is it is it stifling our ability to find solutions when you have such a myopic view dominated by a select number of people on what the challenges the risks and the opportunities are i'd love both your thoughts on that yeah i mean definitely unfortunately i think because the film industry is so much driven by profit what you're always going to get is a lack of comprehension or lack of sensibility towards the natural world not only when filming but also when representing nature or conservation I can not even think of many films which do try and kind of give that message out and I think while there are some films which do portray nature or you know try and cast a light on it it the way it was produced was probably in, in not a very ethical way and also the amount of waste in set production that is used is, is also really shocking. I think there's a lot of room for improvement, more than a lot of room. It, there's like astounding amount of work that can be done to change that, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think it's difficult to say because 
majority of the film industry is about getting the end visual product and it being beautiful and dynamic and layered and all these things. And it's just difficult because this was never a concern for people, you know, even probably 30 years ago. And just the way the world has gone, it has to become a key component now. And I don't know if it's that they've never thought about it or if it's just the fact that it never occurred. Either or, it just has to change. And I think perhaps the only downside to the male industry, or the main downside to the male industry um, of film is that all the stories they tell might not tell the story for everybody. It might not tell it for the perspectives of marginalised women or single mothers or, you know, whoever it might be, just it would only tell it from one specific gaze. And I think that is really one of the most damaging parts as well to this dominated industry. Would you say that the the cost of these truly astoundingly beautiful BBC films, what is, I think, what I call Our Planet, not narrated by David Attenborough, you know, where they use just all the most expensive and advanced technology, you know, drone flights, worldwide travel, crews, massive production crews, yet they're able to reach a huge audience through all different kinds of channels. I mean, is that, are those actually costing more than they're creating a benefit of? Or on the whole, is something like that because it reaches such a massive audience, educates so many people, is okay. It's, it's acceptable to do something at that scale. That's such a good question, I think, because it's kind of the greater good kind of question. And I think, I mean, in a way, it is great that these documentaries are so widespread and I think they're hugely popular and such a great way for people to be in touch with what's happening in in the wild and um, in different habitats and with, you know, but I do think that there's, you know, there's almost a type of, maybe just too extreme, but kind of neo-colonialism, which happens with these shows, you know, going in um, to another country, you have like an all white crew, and I think there could be a lot more participation from local people within within these um, TV shows and to kind of show what exactly what extent, you know, these communities actually live in these spaces um, have with the wildlife, I think is important. So more cultural context, but, you know, they are amazing, but, are, you know, they're amazing as well for how they're filmed rather than maybe, you know, how beautiful they are and it, they are educational but how far does that go after you turn off the TV? That's really the question. Yeah, for sure. It's it's difficult to say because I think striking that balance between creating something beautiful that you're proud of, it, it holds so much more emotion than just the final product and the way you got there. But in terms of thinking about the cost of the climate and whatnot, I do think it probably isn't the most sustainable, but then, and it's hard to measure the effect of this like you can't is there's no way you'd be able to measure you know those the millions of people that watched for example David Attenborough's documentaries and how and if that had an effect on their daily lives but it's just learning about it is key and I don't think we're really in a position to be able to to state whether it's bad or good but it does remind me actually of an article I read about the most recent David Attenborough documentary about his life on planet earth and I read it was on the the correspondent and it was sort of, you know, telling the story of how he got to where he was. And he had never really commented directly on the impact of climate change, despite 
his choice of profession and this like directly addressed it but um it kind of said we had to act now and then turn to the Netherlands as like a leading example for I think it was to do with uh like vertical farming and like how they're growing food and saving energy and stuff and this article essentially completely um challenged what that saying it was misinformation because actually in the Netherlands it had high production rates with with like loads of artificial fertilizer and producing loads of CO2 and essentially it was sort of fact checking this David Asper documentary saying actually you didn't really look into your facts and I think that's just really interesting so maybe and perhaps we don't question what we hear on these documentaries because of their status and because of their uh, universality across the world and popularity. And I guess that brings us back to some of the points you made earlier, where if you have people more directly connected to the communities, the specific industries that are being discussed, covered, what have you in these in these films, you you in theory should have your in a way your on the ground fact checking in real time as you're producing whatever whatever project you have underway. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about film and film production and, and so on and so forth, but both of you and Errol C Productions are engaged in a variety of different means of communication, be it the written word, art, the film that we've talked so much about. What's your motivation for taking such a, a broad approach to telling the story of nature or the people or the challenges we face either as a society or as should we say, as a, as a giant ecosystem known as planet Earth? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I really, really like this question because I think it's, it's very easy to categorize all these different mediums into separate, well, different mediums completely. But I think some are just not as accessible as others. So I think even though, yes, maybe you can film on your phone, for example, um, like I was saying before, not everyone has access to a mobile phone. And it just kind of, and, you know, equipment is very expensive. So I think leaving the, the leaving it open to as many mediums as possible is important. People like to express themselves in completely different ways. And we don't want to shut out anyone or exclude anyone by telling their story, by not having their, their kind of medium that they wanted in. There's also so much crossover between different mediums. And that was a big topic of discussion for us was, how do we categorize these? Some of these overlap so much with each other. And we also see things going from one medium to another, which might work, you know, maybe works well at podcast, maybe not as a film, maybe it works better as a film or works better as written word or as photograph. So people also respond completely differently to different mediums. Some people will watch a documentary and be convinced straight away about what they've seen. Some people will read a book or read an article and that's the way that they kind of get passionate about something. And some people it's photos or a podcast. And I think you have to be completely open to people learning in different ways. And we want to be accessible in that. So not only with producing with different mediums, but also for people to learn through these different mediums. And I think just storytelling isn't, shouldn't be pigeonholed to one medium. And I think it's you get in the danger of just trying to rely on one to tell a story. I think that by combining different mediums, it forms an interdisciplinary nature that actually like enriches how a story is told and it can be told through multiple mediums. So how can someone who's not an artist but and, and frankly doesn't have a desire to be to be an artist or to be a 
a videographer or storyteller or what have you, but truly appreciates the value that those efforts that both of you just talked about bring to nature, bring to society, get involved and help. And so if you have, again, no, no particular talent specific to the creation of stories, films, art, but want to help, what can someone like that do to be a resource to the community of people who are, like you, engaged in connecting the medium of art and photography, and written word to the protection and preservation of nature? This happens to us all the time. We get a lot of people who come to us and who say, I don't have any experience or much experience. And this is exactly the kind of people we want to work with. We want to work with people who have maybe not had access to um, making films before or making mediums or no interest in artistic mediums, but who want to help with other things and things that we can give them is research. We need huge amounts of research, especially when we're talking about subjects which are quite sensitive. We need people to help in in the way we go about that. Um, and we also yeah, need, need research and also ideas. So people come to us with a completely different perspective to what we would have thought of. Everyone has such different ways of thinking and it's great to have someone who doesn't think of themselves as artistic because they'll come in with completely different kind of concepts that we would have not thought about. So, yeah, it goes beyond the extent of what you were saying of, you know, wanting to be an artist. It, there's so many more things you can be involved in. So I would say, yeah, mainly research, but also outreach, you know, contacting people, contacting NGOs, organisations that we could partner with. There's so many opportunities. I think Pauline summarised really that quite well. I think it is really about just starting somewhere and starting small, seeing what's local to you and it will, it will just evolve from there, really. We didn't intend for this to happen, for example, with ROC. We just started with one opportunity and it grew from there. So I think that's really good advice. Thank you both. For the, the last question, I, I ask uh, the same question of everyone and would love both of you to respond to this. And I just, I get so many wonderful answers from it that just make me feel so good when I hear them is despite all the challenges we face as a society, many of them, you, both of you are confronting head on, be it the, you know, the awfulness of sex trafficking, the ravages of climate change that you've seen and draining, essentially drying up of the ROC. There, there's still a reason to be hope. I mean, we wouldn't be doing this if we didn't have any hope. And I would love to hear both of you explain to the listeners of this podcast why why you have hope and why you think they should have hope for a better future. I mean, I think this is definitely probably what someone else might have said before, but I think the younger generation is definitely facing this really head on. I think, um, and what I'm, I'm 24 and I'm not even talking about me, I'm talking people younger than me who know exactly what's happening in the world and who are doing so much to change it. Now, I don't... That, is, that won't be enough in the time being, and that is in no way just their responsibility. But we are seeing a lot of companies and a lot of sectors trying to change into renewable energy, which is really important, whether that's because they want to make a difference or whether because it's just some social pressure, I don't know. But either way, there is, there is a change that is happening. And it's not just about the individual choices you make. It's really about these big, big industries. They're the ones emitting... Um, the most and I think I think we also get so caught up with our individual actions um, but we need to work as a collective on this 
So it's not just about you stopping eating meat. It's about how can you join the collective and how can you make a difference in that way on a bigger scale, especially someone who is privileged and living in uh, in the UK or France or in, in the Western world. And we can make a difference here. And I think there is a lot of hope for that. But yeah, fingers crossed, fingers crossed, definitely. Building on Pauline's points, I think that 2020 has been a year of fluctuations of very high highs and low lows. And then I think just kind of recalibrating your ambitions, expectations, um, priorities in line with a more climate friendly, less egotistical manner will help to follow through on direct action and be active in all the social changes that are happening and the awareness. I think also just really reading and staying up to date and informed is crucial and it you shouldn't be overlooked because it really that's why the younger generation is so on top of these things so to speak because they really have done their research so yeah do not overlook reading just daily about what is going on in the world and what you can do that's a wonderful way to end this conversation Pauline Thea thank you so much for your Wonderful insights. Just in this conversation alone, you gave me so much to think about. I'm sure you've given so many of the listeners a lot to think about as well. So thank you for your time today, but more importantly, thank you for the the passion and all the good that you're doing in the world. It's much appreciated and quite inspiring to say the least. Thanks for those generous words. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think we gave someone a small slither of hope and advice. (laughs) I'm quite hopeful you did. So thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.